Morning, church. Uh, today's reading will be from Colossians 2, verses 16 to 23. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they had seen. They were puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everybody. Marathon Sunday, big day in New York. Love Marathon Sunday. Going to try to get you out of here in time to go cheer somebody on. Um, and I, I, this doesn't always happen to me, but as we were worshiping and, and moving through, just pouring out our hearts to God and praise, and um, I just began to sense the Holy Spirit in my heart uh, reminding me that the most important reason that we gather is the God is here. God's presence is here. And uh, just give you a second to just take a breath and remember that, that God is here. Uh, what a thing that the very God of this whole universe might have something really particular, specific, important to say to you this morning. Um, I think it's worth meeting in a middle school for. Um, and I just had a sense that there may be some people here today who are particularly at the end of their rope when, when it, in regards to exhaustion, just like just worn out um, that God might want to speak some um, peace to you that would be like um, like a balm or like honey, you know, kind of dripping down onto someone's heart and, uh, and, and comforting you. So uh, the best possible thing that could happen in the next few minutes is that the Holy Spirit um, comes powerfully through what is prepared and, and speaks to you uh, as his beloved sons and daughters. Do you know that, that you are the beloved sons and daughters of God? And uh, you don't have to do a single thing to earn that. It is the glory of God to pour out extravagant love. It's more a story about what his character is like than what we can do to earn it. So just take that in. Um, I, I want to take that in. Um, that's probably enough. I should sit down. Um, I want to see if I can do something this morning that's going to feel so basic, especially if you've been in church for a long time. Uh, if you're a follower of Jesus for a long time. But I think it's important to do this from time to time. And I, I want to see if I can, in the most simple terms that I can come up with, um, describe what followers of Jesus mean when they talk about salvation. 
And hopefully by the end, you'll see why it relates to what we just read or what Sky read uh, so, so beautifully and passionately. Um, this, this word, salvation, it's, it's one of those spiritual words that's so loaded. Um, uh, honestly, there's been times in my life where it makes me cringe a little bit, like, you know, the cultural stereotypes of, of like, getting saved. I don't know what your background is, but for me, that, like, that, that, even that term just makes me feel funny. I don't know what to do about it. Um, uh, but there's a lot in this sort of Christian subculture that's like fodder for mocking around the conversion experience. You know, it's like, oh, this guy got religion. What, is that, what does that mean? Um, but I want to take a minute or two and see if we can put some, some terms around it, some descriptions around it that, that might be helpful. Um, you know, I, 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 you talk to people and they're like, listen, my life has had some ups and downs, sure, and I grew up in this type of home or this type of home or this part of the world. Why on earth do I need salvation? That just like the language you people use just sounds so intense and dramatic. Why, what do I need to be saved from? And uh, I think that's an interesting question. The, the, the Christian answer um, to that lies in the reality that uh, what we're talking about has to do with life and death. And that's why the language is so dramatic, because the stakes, uh, according to the scripture, whether you believe them or not, are, are, are tremendously high. And, and I'll start out by framing the idea this way, um, that we are relational beings. Whatever else the scriptural story reveals, it reveals that, that human beings are relational beings, um, that, that we are physical beings, of course. We obviously, that part is like kind of non-negotiable. I have this body. I have, you know, th- this physical existence. I, ha- I have this tangible experience, this visceral human, you know, like uh, movement that goes on in my life. But we are obviously more to that. We have souls. And we might have different language depending on our philosophical or religious background, but we have soul, something inside of us that is critical to our existence. Um, it's our consciousness. It's our, our ability to think, to have an imagination, to live in our thoughts. It is somehow also our volition, our ability to make choices, our willpower. You make choices that matter, right? Like this huge debate in even Christianity in regards to salvation is like, is everything predestined or is God giving us? free will, and it's like, well, well, certainly there's promises that are made, but whatever, our lived experience is that I make choices that matter, right? I choose to have toast, and then I choose to go over and try to sort out getting shoes on a four-year-old, which takes a long time. Then I come back to burned toast, right? And these choices, they have impact, right? They, they, They matter. So you have consciousness, you have volition, you have will, ability to, and, 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 you know, like the spiritual teachers say, this is part of your soul. This is the you that's in the, you know, in, in the physical being is, is, a, is a soul that is primarily uh, relational. We have emotional lives. So you have uh, consciousness or thoughts, you have will, volition, choices, a choice-making mechanism, and you have emotional responses all throughout your life. You have reactions to your world um, that you process in your physical body for sure, but there's something more. And then also, and history bears this out, if you pay attention to the, to the trajectory of the human story, we are often as human beings, physical beings with souls, spiritual beings having a physical experience, however you want to describe it, we long for transcendence. 
Like once we get our Maslow hierarchy of needs, our basic needs met, we long for transcendence. We long for something that gives meaning and purpose to our life beyond just going to the grocery store or making toast or getting shoes on a four-year-old. So the story of the scriptures, right? I know this is like basic 101 stuff, but we need to like remember our story a little bit. The story of the scriptures is that the source of our life, the source of our life is a relational God who initiated this world from a posture of love. Now, take away the mechanics. How did God make the world? How was he involved? Was it a, you know, like, was it a long millennial process or was it a few days? Like, forget that. Forget the mechanics whatsoever. The scriptural story is there is a God who initiated this world from a posture of love. Not like God was kicking around lonely and needed pals, But God was like, in God's very being was relationship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And that spilled over like an artist that has to make something into a world that is fundamentally relational. So you and I were made to know and love God. You are are known and loved. You are made to know and love God. You are made to know and love one another to know and to understand and even love yourself. Maybe that's the hardest of the three for you so far. And to, to be immersed in this world in a meaningful way, doing things that matter in participation with God and with other people, like in society, in, in vocation, in, in, in your work. You are meant to be fully alive physically and spiritually. That's the scriptural, like whether you believe it or not, that's what the scriptures say human beings are, are, are for. And you can describe this along four relational frameworks. We have a relationship with God. We have a, an understanding, a self-understanding of our own identity. Then we have our relational lives with other people. And then we have our world, our society, our work, the things that we do. You can understand your life at least according to these, do I have a relationship or a connection with God? How does that inform and relate to my identity? How does that inform or relate to how I relate to other people? How does that inform or relate to my vocation, my, my work and the world? So... The scripture is saying that you are made for all of these relationships to be thriving. Whatever Jesus is talking about when he says, come to me and I'll give you life and give it to, the, to you to the full, he's not simply saying, I'll, I'll tick off all the boxes that you would come up with a life coach for what you want to achieve. It's saying, I'm going to make these relational frameworks thrive in your life because you're first and foremost a relational being. But many of us don't often or always experience that fullness. Far, far, far from it. Because the scriptural story says something has happened. There has been a rupture in this relational framework. And it it comes into the story early on. The biblical words for this rupture are sin and death. Again, very dramatic language. Salvation, sin, and death. What what are we talking about when we talk about it? It works basically like this. At some point, human beings were tempted with the idea that they could get fullness without having to have God involved. That they could sort of be their own authority or be their own God. The idea was put into their head that maybe they could be happy without God. God or what God says. And so that's basically like when you hear sin, we're not just talking about like obviously evil acts. We're talking about separating yourself from God's character, person, presence, and word. Like to sin is to separate yourself from, from God. In a sense, it's to try and meet the deep needs of life out of your own resources without taking God 
into, into account. So they chose against God. This is what it's called to, to be sin. Actually, it's so important. Like the first one is they're eating, eating fruit, right? It's often depicted like it's an apple or something. But like the first one in the scripture, whatever that, that picture is meant to stir in our imaginations, like it wasn't like the first thing they did was stab somebody. The first thing they did was eat food with a certain attitude and expectation. So we know it's like a framework for life that cuts against that relational framework that we're, we, were, we were set up in. So there was a break with God, and that break with God brought about a rupture in our spiritual life. The language of the scriptures is that we died spiritually. When God's speaking with those first, you know, those, those first people in Genesis, he's saying, when, when you do this, if you break with me, you're going to die. And yet they do it and they don't drop dead. Something else dies within them. They spiritually die. So there's a rupture in their relationship with God that affects their identity, that affects their relationships with other people, and affects the world. Like literally, the results that are described in the, in the, in the, in the coming things is, is they're insecure and afraid. The first thing you see them doing is hiding. They're running away, they don't know who they are. They, they, it's like they forget their name, and they forget who they, who they really are. They, they start blame shifting. There's strife in their relational life right from the beginning. Uh, the, the, the literally, Mondays began right after this, people being stressed out at the beginning of the work week because work got hard, like tilling the ground, like bringing other people along became really hard. Labor and delivery became a, me- a mess, right? And we have people in here who work in that, like being a doula is a challenge because of how challenging it is to bring a human being into this world, all a result of this relational breakdown that takes place in the origins of the human story as God tells it. So, this spiritual death has been passed on so that every human being, you and I and everyone else, are born in the image of God, right? There's a way that you and I are still spiritual beings You and I somehow reflect God's creativity and beauty and joy. Every one of you, whether you're, whatever your belief system is, every one of us are made in the image of God. So there's like a dignity to human life that we must respect and honor and treasure. Like there's the the, the unity and diversity of the human experience. But not everyone who's born in the image of God is born in relational union with God. So we still live with this fragmented, ruptured relational world. And we spend a lot of our time trying to sort out who am I? Who am I in relationship to other people? Who am I in relationship to my achievements, to my work, to my vocation? Who am I perhaps even in relationship to a transcendent deity? And we go out asking these types of questions as we move through our life. God, self, others, world. Here's the thing. The scriptures indicate that you can be spiritually dead and still go to work and to school, and to the store, or to the club, or, or vacation, or be sitting at home watching Netflix, or be researching the cure for cancer, and still have a rupture in these primary relational ways, starting with your relationship with God and filtering into everything else. The story of the scriptures is that without repair of that union, you will remain spiritually dead. There will always be something that you put in the place that God was meant to be, is meant to be in your life. And the the scriptures are the long winding story of the repair of this rupture, this brokenness in, in our relational framework. We have a brokenness in our intimacy and connection and union with God that breaks, that filters down into a brokenness in our identity, our relationships with other people, our relationships with the, wor- the world, society, work. So 
When you read the, the, the scriptures, like you're reading through like the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, sometimes you're learning something for the, for the first time or again about what God is like as you move through the story. It's a long, winding story. Sometimes you're learning about what the character of God is. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in mercy. Like, there's these things that he asks Israel to repeat on a, on a regular basis. This is, I am God. This is what I'm like. Sometimes you have a long narrative of someone's life. You remember what people are like. Right? You have someone that's like shining, glorious moments like King David and then massive, utter failures. You're like, oh yeah, this is what human beings are like. This is actually what I'm like. I have shining, beautiful, glorious moments and then I have utter, horrific, embarrassing failures. Sometimes you're remembering what the world is like. As you move through the story, you're seeing the, the, the brokenness along these relational lines expressed, defined, described, what's God like, what's the world like. God works with a person he calls Abraham. Then Abraham becomes a family against literally all odds. That family becomes a nation, the nation of Israel, to show them what would it be like for God to be your God and how would that impact all your relationships. That's what, that's what the, 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 the Hebrew scriptures are about. And you find out that God is, is, is loving and patient and kind, but also like God can't abide certain things. Like he can't just be like, yeah, you cheated and stole and murdered and, 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 and forgot the poor and I can just be cool with that. Like there's some, there's some disconnect. When we talk about God being holy, it literally means that God is other, that there's some difference in how God is and we are that makes us somehow incompatible. That rupture is substantial and that we can't seem to get over that rupture back to being like God in somehow whatever way we were before. So God's working with these, these people, this nation. He's trying to make sure over and over again that they don't substitute anything in their lives to be God other than God, other than Yahweh. And that includes, and we, the, all of these things happen, that, that they don't substitute food, that they don't substitute sex, that they don't substitute power, that they don't su substitute military victory or human wisdom or, or their own comfort or religious performance or violence or, or apathy and avoidance. All of those at different points in the story kind of get drawn in as possible substitutes for God. And none of them really work. All those things can be a part of life. Some of them are obviously bad. Some of them are, can, be, can be really good. But they... If they exist in your life in this distorted, broken relational space, there's a chance that they will try to occupy the center place of your soul. And whatever you practically, really, truly lean on to meet the deep needs of your soul is something like your God. And Yahweh is continually working with Israel to say, please don't accept a substitute that's basically gonna break your soul. Nothing else that people attempt to use to make them spiritually alive the way God intended works except a reconnection, love and obedience with this relational God. That's the story Israel keeps learning. And then another big part of the narrative is that people can't get back to God on their own, even with a great deal of assistance. So the gospels come with God coming to us. Jesus comes as certainly as a part of Israel's story. There's hundreds of promises about Jesus coming as Messiah. He comes as a part of Israel's story to, 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 to continue this work of God using that nation to repair the world. But he also comes as a way for anyone who wants to be made spiritually alive again 
to reconnect with God. This, we talk about this a lot. Like, God is different than us. <laughs> like, plants are alive, and yet they're different than us. Golden retrievers are alive, and yet they're different than us. And, like, try to explain cold fusion, like, to a golden retriever, or try to explain like the judiciary system to a plant. Like, it's like, wait a minute, like the degrees of being up, and when you go up, up to God, it's like, try to explain that he's three in one. He's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and yet one God. Okay, hard, hard to do, challenging. But somehow this God is not compromising, like, let me just make it simple for you, I'm just one thing. No, he's like, no, my nature is different than yours, and yet I wanna bring you all the way in to the family. So Jesus comes to reconnect us with God. This reconnection with God is what it means to be made spiritually alive again. Whatever it was to spiritually die, to reconnect with God through the person of Jesus is to be made spiritually alive. This is what Christians are meaning to mean when they say salvation. It is a reconnection with God through a relational like, thing that happens with the person of Jesus. All, 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 all that mess that comes from our disconnection is restored when we are brought back into life with God. Not life for God, not life in, in ideas about God, but life in relational connection to God. So when Christians say salvation, this is what they're talking about. And I, and I, I know most of you knew, knew that, but I hope your heart begins to be refreshed and warmed by this reality of what salvation is for us is to be brought into the family, beloved sons and daughters, filled with his very spirit. Now, when Christians talk about salvation, it's important to, to realize they, they mean it in three different tenses. There's, three, there's, a, there's a past reality of salvation, there's a present reality of salvation, and there's a future reality of salvation. I'm gonna hit each of them very quickly. In the past tense of salvation, what we're talking about is what God has done in coming to us in the person of Jesus. So we're about to get into Advent. We're going to expect and long for and hope and then celebrate that Jesus was born, that Jesus taught and demonstrated the kingdom of God. This is what it looks like when God is in charge. This is what it looks like when those relational accesses are totally healed. This is what it looks like when people have enough to eat, when no one's forgotten. Jesus comes and he teaches us what the kingdom of God is like, but he also demonstrates it. He's like, get up and take your mat. See, you know, he's, he's showing us what the kingdom of God looks like. Then Jesus dies on the cross, and even though he has no relational brokenness with the Father, he takes on that brokenness for us. On the cross, Jesus desperately cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he is taking that relational rupture that belongs to the human race on himself, on the cross. And then when he cries out, it is finished, it's because everything that you and I could possibly do to separate us from God, Jesus took on himself and fully absorbed absolutely all of it. So when he cries out, it is finished, it literally means there's nothing that has to keep you from being relationally connected to the God who made you in his image, who loves you, who delights in you, and who longs for your life to be full and alive in, in, in union with him. So Jesus dies, and then he, he raises from the dead. We celebrate this, we just moved through the whole Christian year. And we're, we're at Easter, Jesus rises from the dead to offer us this new life, to offer us this reconnection. So that's what... The past tense is what Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection. 
So when we, a lot of our songs are about this. This meal is about this. We come together, we celebrate what Christ has done in being our salvation. Then the present tense reality of salvation is, this is where faith comes into play, is that you and I trust today in who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished. And let's be honest, this is where it gets mysterious. How did this person thousands of years ago who lived and died in, in Israel, who died on some Roman cross, how does that person pr- like, practically impact my life? But this has been happening over and over again for hundreds and thousands, hundreds of thousands for a long time. Don't quote me on the timeline. That people say, I trust in what Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection. Different words for it. But they say, I believe. I believe this counts for me. I ask you, God, to forgive me. I ask you to heal me. I ask you to come in and to bring me into your family. Forgive me of my sins. Make me new. Fill me with your spirit. And what happens is it does happen. Like, People are brought into union with God, and they don't know how to explain it. Some people like, have goosebumps. Some people cry. Some people fall on the ground. Some people shake. Some people are very like, I just journaled about it. Like, oh, whatever. But like, some type of conversion experience happens where you're like, I didn't know God, and I know God now in a different way. And it's like, I'm adopted into the family, but it's still going to take a while for me to feel at home here. The present tense is that we receive and accept the love of God and the offer of union with God. We don't have to do this alone because the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is activating this new life in us. So it's not something we just do by willpower or by coming to church a lot. It's the spirit makes it alive in us. But that's the present tense. The present tense of salvation is that we trust in Jesus and by the spirit we live a new type of life, the type of life that Jesus was describing in the kingdom of God. So basically you come alive and then you live alive. The future tense of salvation is that union with God begins in this person an eternal type of life. The quality of life that has begun with him is a life in union with God. It is what N.T. Wright calls the life of the age to come has already begun in us. So when you hear in the New Testament eternal life, it's not something that happens in the clouds just after you die. It's a type of life that has begun now that is not going to change, that is not going to end, that is going to transcend your physical death because the, the truest thing about you is that you are a spiritual being and that you are going to go on in union with with God even after your death. That's the future tense of salvation. All the promises that have been made to God's people are yes for you in union with Jesus, Israel's Messiah, and our Savior, and, and, and that's what our future hope is. Basically, like whatever place you find yourself in, with no hype, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. You are going to increase into the fullness of who God has always intended you to be. And then even if illness and death and tragedy come into your story, it will be a blip on the radar compared to where you're headed. Literally, Paul's like, it's not even worth comparing. Now, it's agonizing in the middle of it. We all know that. But it's not even worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed in you. There's a future tense of salvation that is our hope, that we are going to be united to God, united to one another in this like, How do you even describe it? The metaphors are all over the place about what it's gonna be like. It's like a wedding feast. It's like some crazy city. It's like, you know, like we're finally stewarding all the authority that God has given us in, in love. 
The future tense of salvation is that we will be with God forever in the expression of his kingdom. That it will grow in fullness and it will include people from every tribe and tongue and nation in the world. This beautiful unity and diversity. So, salvation, as the scriptures describe, is a tremendous thing. And we should not accept any substitutes uh, or cheaper or lesser version of it, no matter who is selling it. And that's what this passage is about. We could have dissected this, this passage that we just read, down, you know, got into the, the, the minutia of it. We're going to look at it for a second. But the whole thing hinges on, on this. It is partly and powerfully described, especially the past tense of salvation, in the section that comes right before this. This is how we ended last week. Remember this? When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, basically like you're cut off from God because you're dead relationally, you're cut off from God in covenant love, that's the Israel story part of it, you're totally cut off. God made you alive, how? With Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross, having disarmed the powers and authorities. Anything that would accuse us, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. All of that needs to be in our minds because the way this passage begins is one of the heaviest therefores in the whole New Testament. In light of all that, in light of what Christian salvation really is, therefore, don't let anyone judge you about what you're eating or when you practice Sabbath or if you went to the new moon party. Don't let anyone, basically, don't let anyone sell you on accepting a shadow of the things that were to come when we have the real thing in our midst. It's basically like, we, we joke around and say, whenever you see a therefore in the scriptures, you should ask what it's there for. And what it's there for is the turn in the idea framework is in light of this staggering salvation that nothing is going to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You're utterly brought into the family. Don't accept some, some busybody trying to make you feel bad about your kosher diet. Don't, don't stress out because you didn't have a good costume for the new moon celebration. Don't accept a shadow. Don't take this astonishing, powerful, full, mysterious gift and reduce it down into some easily measurable social convention that people think is important. Don't take the mystery of God coming to give us the gift of God's life to utterly forgive and heal us and make us family and reduce it down into some diet. Whatever it is, it is not simply behavior modification. It is reuniting love. The very best story that our very best stories spin off from is reuniting love no matter what it takes. So, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, or a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and with the worship of angels disqualify. Such a person also grows into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. 
I want you to notice for just a second that it says, these things are a shadow of the things that were to come. Doesn't that strike your ears a little funny? Like, I kind of expect it to say, uh, uh, these are a shadow of the things that are to come. But it's a shadow of the things that were to come. Basically, these were like tutors or something to like get our minds moving in the right direction so that when God gave the gift of Jesus, we would know that, that this is what we've, the whole thing's been pointing to. The apostle is saying these things were pointing to the full reality, the actual substance is in Christ. Now this idea of a shadow of things that were to come shows up in the scripture a bunch. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna walk you through a, a, many of them, but in the garden, in, in, in Genesis, there's shame, there's hiding, there's fear, and, and, and God covers them with clothing in the garden. Whatever that is, the, actually the first death takes place to cover them with clothing, a picture of things to come. And then, and, then, and then later, the high priest of Israel, when he goes into the holy place of God, he has this elaborate clothing on that represents all the tribes. Like you can go through in, in Leviticus or, or in the law and read about his costume. And his costume represents the people as he goes into the presence of God, clothed. And then later, in the gospel, it's like put on the righteousness of Jesus. Like you're relationally united to God, but you put on. And it's all, there's, a, there's a shadow and a hint and, and, and a foretelling of what's to come all through the scriptures. The same thing is true with the tabernacle, the tent that Israel travels around with. And then eventually it's the temple. And then eventually the temple becomes the people. And they are actually filled with the life and glory of God. A shadow of things to come. There's the sacrificial system. Israel sacrificing these animals. Depending on your status and, and, and wealth in the society. What you could afford to bring to God and worship. And then eventually John the Baptist in the spirit of the prophet Elijah says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Over and over. There's a shadow of the things that, that, are, that are on the way. And then they arrive in the person of Jesus. Jesus Christ is the loving personal appearance of the relational God, Yahweh. Yahweh of Israel. Christ is the one who repairs our relationship with God. His life, death, and resurrection becomes ours by the Holy Spirit. This is our hope. This is what we sing about. This is our meal. This is our life together. Paul is writing from a dark, leaky, hole-in-the-ground cell, having people bring him his necessities on a daily basis to say, whatever you do, church, don't forget this reality. Don't accept some cheap, lesser, manageable substitute. But there is tremendous social and cultural pressure on the people receiving this letter, and I'm guessing on you as well, to accept something less, to accept something more manageable, something different. A diet is easy to see, it is measurable, it is pass or fail. You're not gonna probably be terribly embarrassed to mention it in front of your, like try to mention the whole 30 with a coworker and then try to mention Jesus. Try to mention keto and then try to mention like, uh, you know, like Christ's return. Like just see which one feels weirder. Like a diet is, is easy, it's more manageable, uh, it's a pass or fail, it's a way to know who's in and out, who's doing this. Oh, I see you have LaCroix and you have LaCroix, you must be doing some sort of diet, right? Um, a special religious holiday is pass or fail. It's easy to see, it's manageable, who's in, who's out. Someone who's had a special vision, right? Someone who might be able to, to use that to make other people feel like their spiritual experience is somehow less than. 
Paul's writing from jail to say, please don't allow anyone to knock you off of the reality that you were utterly accepted because of Christ. He is the substance. Here's the thing. This is one of the ugly parts of being a human being. We are often so desperately insecure that we will use our power and influence to make other people feel less than. That reality was taking place in this city church in the first century in the Roman Empire, and for many of us, it's taking place in your life as well. Right, we might have only just discovered something this week or this time last year, and yet we can look down our very long noses with disdain at someone who has not quite gotten it yet. Can you believe they still eat like that? Can you believe they still listen to that? Can you believe they still think like that? In diet, in culture, in music, in fashion, in politics, in religious practice, we are so good at saying, I found this thing, what's wrong with you? Don't you get it? Don't you see? And we put this pressure, this societal and cultural pressure on one another to fall in. And the, and the easiest things are things that are visible and manageable. Did you do this like I did it? Are you in or are you out? Pass, fail. Religious self-righteous pride is some of the ugliest and most damaging in the world. <laughs> I'll say that one more time. Religious self-righteous pride is some of the ugliest, most damaging in the world because it takes our tendency to wound and exclude and then loads the gun with divine ammunition. Some of you have been wounded by that. Someone saying, you, you're not quite doing it right. You're not, you haven't quite gotten there yet. Are you still thinking that way? Don't you see Paul is pleading with them from jail, don't forget your salvation is a person, not a list of rules. Your salvation is Jesus and your union with Jesus and not anything less than that. Don't lose your connection to the head. Don't lose your connection to the person of Jesus. That's the pleading message of this passage. One of the most intense moments of my, uh, my life um, I've shared aspects of this story many times before, but I'm just gonna hit it very quickly. One of the most intense moments of my life was running through a field with my best friend um, because his wife had very obviously fallen off a horse. The horse had come back over the ridge and, uh, and you couldn't hear her screaming, so you knew something was up. She had fallen, but she was not able to yell, so we were like sprinting through this field. And we find his wife who's crumpled and very laying in an odd way, and it's like, okay, something's really wrong here. And um, she'd been smashed in the head by a branch and fallen backwards off of a horse. And I stood there in the field with Zach, uh, who was our first music director, and his wife, Stacy, of one year, is laying there unconscious. Her eyes have rolled back in her head. We come upon her, and she was lifeless. What we came to find out was that she had severed four vertebrae in her spine, in her upper spine, and that her body had lost its commutative connection to her mind. The messages were not going through, and so her life was very much threatened. So there was a little while, is she going to live at all? And then when it was obvious that she was going to live, it was basically like, yes, yeah, she's going to live, but her life is going to be significantly different than what you'd expect. She's going to be a quadriplegic because the signals aren't getting from the head to the body. As she came to over, over the next months, and it was absolutely miraculous, like 
the East little stage of healing. It was like a, a reconnection of the messages getting from the head to the body. And a new entire like whole process of life was, was coming alive to her again. It was, like, it was like things that she had done her entire life. She's relearning to do. And there's a, a funny aspect. We celebrated her birthday in that first month in the hospital nine times. Because she kept forgetting that we'd celebrated it. So like she would give another gift and she'd be like, well, my birthday. She's also like on morphine. So she was hilarious. Um, she would come out of like out of these morphine fits. She'd be like, I was at the mall in my bikini and everyone had my bathing suit. Um, she literally was standing there with all her family around and she told them all that it was my fault that she got hurt. It's like, thanks for that. I was like, that's the drugs, guys. Totally not my fault. Um, but finally, after like the seventh time of celebrating her birthday, we went to one of those cookie companies in the mall and we made a cake and we had them put Happy Friday, Angel Face Head. Because um, she had one of those, uh, you know, like um, halo braces on. And I'm like, she's not going to remember. So we just said something funny and we ate the cake. You see where we're going with this? She's coming back to life slowly by reestablishing the connection with her head, with, with her, the body and the head are being united. Paul is writing with incredible urgency from jail to say, listen, do not let anything sever your connection because you're li- you will literally be lifeless. You will literally have to accept some cheap, false, shadow-level substitute. You'll just become a people of religious behavior modification if you lose your connection to the head. You can't lose your connection to Jesus. It's literally everything. It's the very thing that gives us life, that heals us along all four of those relational, relational lines. Don't lose the message that Christ is your life. There was a, there was a I don't, I'm not even gonna go into all the context. There was a host of very profound pressures, Jewish pressures, Roman Empire pressures, city societal pressures on these believers to substitute things into the place where their actual confidence would be in something other than their new identity in Christ. And many of them might have had an appearance of wisdom, but our problem is not first behavioral, it's relational. No manner of behavior modification alone can be our salvation because first we have to be reunited to our family. And then all all different types of behavior will flow out of that. But if you substitute and you make behavior modification first, you lose your connection to the head. We might make many types of improvements to our life, but we cannot mistake them for our salvation. The substance of that is our union with Christ. The last thing I'll mention is a few years after I graduated from college, um, a group of my friends, um, I do want to say miraculously like a month after the accident, Stacy walked out of the Shepherd Spinal Center in Atlanta, and it was one of the most powerful moments of God's activity and healing that I'd ever seen, and still to this day, one of the stories of, of profound growth in my life and pleading with God in prayer, and, uh, but, but uh, uh, I just wanted to r- round, round that out, but um, a few years after I graduated from college, a few friends from school, um, uh, a few years younger than me, some of them I had known fairly well, they had a friend named Kyle, and he got diagnosed with cancer. Some of you guys may have seen something like this happen before, but during his chemotherapy, uh, Kyle lost his hair, and so a group of his close friends all shaved their head in solidarity with Kyle. They all said, if you have to, if you have to lose your hair, we're going to lose our hair too. Now, I want you to think about that just for a second, right? It's an expression of love. It's an expression of their, their union and unity with, with Kyle in a difficult time. Shaving their heads was an expression of love. 
Shaving their heads did not make them friends. It wasn't like Kyle was then like anybody who saw who happened to have a buzz cut. He's like, my buddy, you did this for me. Like, of course not, no. But, but their shaving their heads was an expression of love. It didn't mean his friends who didn't shave their heads were any less of his friends, but it was an important expression for a few of those who loved him. If someone had gone around starting to put pressure on people who knew Kyle that they had to shave their heads in order to be friends with him, wouldn't it have missed the point? And this is part of it, right? Our expressions of love and devotion and obedience to Christ are tremendously important, but they're a part of our relational expression to our union with Christ. We, we take this meal not because it brings us into the family. We go into the water not because God's like, oh, now you're clean. We've been made clean. The substance is Jesus. And everything that flows out of that, our changed lives, is out of that relational union. And if you put the other stuff first, you totally flip the gospel on its head and you get into massive amounts of trouble. We are very good at taking what happens to be working for us in a particular moment and making it necessary for everyone. And that's a problem. You don't all have to shave your head. But you all have to say, what does is, what is an expression of love look like today? for my union with Christ. It might be sitting still and receiving. It might be reading the scriptures, it might be giving generously, it might be being the first to ask for forgiveness. For many of us, it will be receiving this meal. For some of us, it will be singing with our hands raised. For some of us, it will be journaling tomorrow morning for a certain amount of time. For some of us, it'll be our regular commitment to a service project that we go to. For some of us, it will be like, but as soon as you begin to say, now this list of things makes you in union with God. No, it is because you are in union with God through what Jesus has done that all of those things flow out of and that is how we are transformed. Paul is, is urging them, the thing you must have is Christ. We must have this relational repair. That is our salvation. That is ultimately what glorifies and honors God because that our behavior flows out of that union. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we had a strong sense as we were praying this morning that, um, that you might wanna take some new ground in people's lives, God. I, I just sense that maybe you wanted to to reassure some people in this room, to give them your peace in place of their exhaustion. The exhaustion of trying to be enough for you, to be enough for this world. I pray that the declaration of Jesus on the cross, it is finished, would wash over this church right now. Would wash away any way that we've tried to perform to earn your love. Would wash away any shame that makes us think that we're excluded or we're in some different category that can't belong. We are not better at making mistakes or sinning or failing than you are at redeeming. I pray in Jesus' name that gospel freedom, union with Christ would wash over this church right now. You would heal us of mere behavior modification you would heal us of succumbing to pressure from, uh, from one another or from our world. Help us to live in the freedom that you've offered us, the fullness that you've offered us. In Jesus' name, amen.